What's up, guys? Welcome to the Sports Psych MDs podcast. This is episode number seven, Substance Use. I'm Tori. Thanks for tuning in. Today, Armin and I, we're going to focus in on marijuana, alcohol, talk a little bit about opiates and, and how these substances can make permanent changes to our brains and how to overcome this and how these substances can affect our lives, not only on the field, but off the field as well. And then we're going to zoom in on Josh Gordon, the stud wide receiver for the New England Patriots right now. He was open and candid about his struggles with substance use and GQ and uninterrupted interviews he's done so let's go ahead and get into it hope you guys enjoy what's going on everybody how y'all doing yes we're back welcome like mds y'all welcome welcome everybody to another exciting episode. I'm Tori. I'm Armin. And we're the Sports, Sports like, like MDs. MDs. That's right. That's All right. All right. So what do we got today? Well, man, today's going to be interesting for sure. It's going to be real interesting. It's a topic it's we gonna be all can relate to. It's a, yes, very intoxicating, very withdrawing at times. <laughs> um, but we want to talk about drugs and alcohol. And, and all of the above. And all of the above. And, uh, but primarily, we're going to talk about how it affects athletes. After we talk about that, we're going to, we're going to touch a little bit on how it affects people in general. Because there are a lot of communities that have been affected by drugs in, in a variety of ways. And it'll be important, I think, to, to just touch on it for a moment. Yeah, definitely a, an important sociocultural topic that we oh, should definitely yeah. I mean think about how discuss. much attention like cannabis has got in yeah. the last few years right here in Cali I mean it's front and center you know they, wow. they of course legalized it recreationally Re- legalized ago. here so we could be smoking right now if we wanted but there's people <laughs> locked up all throughout the country because of that um that mystic plant and that's something so yeah, and we're probably going to do a whole other podcast specifically on cannabis and marijuana as well because it's it's a uh, definitely a hot topic right now and there's a lot of misunderstandings with regards to that. Yeah. But today we're going to give a brief outline of all the different drugs, including marijuana, including alcohol. So as you can imagine, we're psychiatrists and, and substance use is something we deal with directly. We A lot of psychiatrists will go into what's called an addiction fellowship, meaning they'll get a full year of training specifically with regards to addiction medicine to deal with people who have addictions, all types of addictions, from heroin addictions, other opiate addictions, to alcohol addictions, to marijuana addictions. Yes, you can be addicted to marijuana, um, to nicotine addiction. So this is right up our alley. This is our focus here today, uh, substance use and addiction and how it relates to athletes. Yeah. So you want to go ahead and... Yeah, well... I mean, and, and first off, I think everybody has had a family member or someone they know who suffered from absolutely. an addiction or a substance use absolutely. issue. Or maybe a lot of individuals have had a, their own troubles with, not necessarily addiction, but with substances. Oh, yeah. Taking something, maybe taking a little too much of something. Maybe you don't remember exactly what happened the night before. Maybe you woke up to someone you weren't (laughs) sure how you woke up there. Who knows? We've Um, we've all been there. No, but 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 no, I mean, okay. So some of us, many of us, I'm sure, many of our listeners, we were maybe tame now, but we all, you know, at one time were in college. And, you know, in college, you experiment with different things. I know a lot of people who and went so, hard yeah, in high school. Maybe even, yeah. I have a lot of patients who go hard in middle school and before that. For sure. But yeah, college for sure. 
Exactly, because you know you, you no longer have your parents watching over you. you maybe you want to experiment a little bit, you're trying to figure things out. Yeah, can we think about that for a minute? Being like 17, 18, 19, and you're finally let go into the real world. Um, you, most of the time you're staying in a dorm with other like-minded individuals, right. uh, co-ed dorms a lot of times. And who do you have as a supervisor? No one in your room. You, you live by yourself or with a roommate or with two roommates, but you have like an RA. And how old is that RA? Maybe two years older, maybe 20 years old. Right. Maybe he's a junior. Right. Maybe he's the guy that's 21 and can get you some soda, some adult soda. So, yeah. I think it's I, an Indiana term. I don't know about soda. your... <laughs> Um, I don't know about your experience in college, beer. but we were actually talking about this a little bit uh, earlier. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, we were. Man, no, I, at Indiana University, people, <laughs> it got wild. It, and alcohol was everywhere. Oh, I um, this I, was I've a little bit before University. the marijuana came into play, but people were still smoking ganja left and right and other, other drugs, obviously. So it was a wild time, man. I well, and see, had I, had a, I had a very, no, well, I had a very, very different experience in, in college. I went to a military academy, you know, so, I mean, things for us were very regimented. You know, it was a dry campus. I, I, well, I shouldn't say dry hey, campus. IU they, was a dry campus. That didn't stop well, anyone. Well, we, you weren't allowed to drink in the dorms. And so for us, we had to find fun off campus. And first few years there, you're only getting off campus once in a blue moon, to be honest, like you got a weekend pass, you, you know, you were, you were loving life because uh, they, they were few and far between. But when you did get them, you made the most of them. And uh, I, we had this tradition. We used to, me and my crew, at least, we used to go up to, to UC Boulder. Oh, I yeah. heard good things. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's crazy up there. Alcohol rampant. There was alcohol? Oh, my <laughs> God. I mean, I hate to admit this, man. I'm, I'm, I hate to admit this, but my crew... We used to go to the liquor store and we started the night. We each got like what half fifth of a different type of like one of my buddies, it was Jack. The other one, oh, I you think guys he was got fancy Bean. stuff. Jim yeah, Bean. my other, yeah, my other buddy, I think star. he was a, a Cuervo guy. And we would just sit in the car and just like take it down. That was how we started the night. Okay. I don't know how we survived. Socially acceptable. Oh, absolutely. But that's socially that's, encouraged. We had to. I mean, if we wouldn't have fit in otherwise. Mm hmm. Oh, you know, yeah. so I mean, and this that is how liquid it was. courage, man. And that stuff was flowing. And so I, I recognized from that experience that like, man, college, college, you know, is it, this it, what it is? It's like, all right. It's like the proving grounds, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, for our bodies. It does kind of put a little bit of this almost weird pressure, although you don't really feel it at the time to partake. Like you said, you yeah. felt like you had to, to join in. And alcohol gives you a euphoric effect mm-hmm. and you're kind of doing something a little bit dangerous and you, it makes you less inhibited and it helps with anxiety, at least initially, and you have some fun. But it, yeah, it's, it's, it's weird when looking back at IU, we have this week called Little 500, yeah, where it's one of the b- biggest sporting events or drinking events in, in college. Um, right. They made a movie about it called Breaking Away. The Cutters are the famous team. Anyways, literally drinking from Monday to Sunday mm. and everyone on right. campus and you're struggling to go to class. Maybe you don't go to class, but you're drinking every single night. But at the same time, you're like, wow, that wasn't the smartest thing in the world. Not at all. Not at all. And, you know, the numbers su- suggest that, believe it or not, college athletes are probably using these things or abusing these things Oh yeah, at a rate that's 
pretty much similar to everybody else mm-hmm. <laughs> on oh, campus. Especially at, at, going back to IU, we, we'd see the basketball players, the football players, all of the basketball players are more recognizable in the in the bars, and yeah, they were just getting hammered just like everyone else. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, we, we have these numbers here about uh, student-athlete use. Mm-hmm. There was a survey they did. We talked about it in the inaugural episode, 23,000 student-athletes across three divisions of NCAA. Ooh. Essentially, they it's, use it's substances at the same rates as non-athletes. So we have alcohol use, 80%. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so it's not just Armin and I, it's, you know? Not at all. It's like, so like four out of every five people. Yeah, you mind you, you don't turn 21 until, usually until like junior, senior yeah, year. Junior, so yeah. cigarette use, a little over 10%, which is actually a little less in athletes compared to the general population, which is closer to 20%. Marijuana use is very close, about one in four. And this is back in 2017. Imagine this has gone up and actually we have data on that, that it has gone up. Um, 24, 20, close to 25% of um, student athletes use marijuana. And, and for D- Division I, uh, NCAA Division I f- uh, sports, it's it's a banned substance. So mm-hmm. that's a pretty high number for a banned yeah, substance compared is. to the general population. It's like 33%. So it's really close there. And then, Let me ask you a question. I just want to throw something out yeah. there. Have you ever seen a negative ad campaign directed at alcohol? Just like I mean, the, the drinking and driving well, stuff. Well, drinking and driving that's for it. sure. I mean, they'll, they'll get you on your, on your for but that. But I mean, but just in terms of just like the party aspect of No, of that's... I, you don't... Because <laughs> like there's so many negative attack ads directed at like tobacco, mm-hmm. cigarette smoking, you mm-hmm. know. And you'll, I, you'll even see like marijuana reefer madness and, back yeah, in the day. For sure. And, you know, it's like, just say no to drugs and all that, you know, back in the day. But, like, you don't really see that when it comes to alcohol use. And what's interesting is that we both went to medical school. You know as well as I do, like, the health effects, the, 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 the negative consequences mm-hmm. of tobacco use and alcohol use are neck and neck, essentially. Oh, yeah. You know, alcohol might even be worse to some extent. Mm, absolutely, dude. It can cause a bunch of different cancers. Obviously, oh, yeah. it can quit your liver. Give Brain, you cirrhosis. You know, get, you know, uh, and psychiatry, we did consult liaison psychiatry together. Yeah. How, how many patients do we see with uh, quote unquote wet brain yeah. or alcoholic hallucinosis? Chronic alcohol users that at some point yeah. they're they're drinking a 30 rack of beers and two bottles of wine a day. Absolutely. No, and, and, and that's the thing, man. Like, you know, I, I think tobacco and cigarettes, so I don't, I don't want to say it's gotten to get a bad rep because I mean, everything that that you hear about it is true in terms of the negative consequences, the lung cancer, respiratory disease in general, COPD, cancers of many varieties. There's a lot, there's a heart disease being a big one, you know, and something that obviously resonates with athletes. So, and, you know, diabetes, strokes, all that stuff. I think a lot of people can see that the physical deterioration you get from, from smoking and from from alcohol, everyone's been hung over at some point. Or although I have some buddies that say they don't get hung over, I don't believe them. No. Um, everybody ha- has had like some GI issues, maybe a little bit. if they drank too much. But I don't think a lot of people realize sometimes the GI the kinda, means gastrointestinal yeah, for stomach anybody. issues. Yeah, um, curious. But I don't think as many people realize the the mental effect that even cigarette smoking, nicotine can have on you, and mm-hmm. alcohol can have on you with regards to flushing in and out of your system. Um, real quick with regards to alcohol, it does have effects on your sleep. A lot of people use it as a nightcap. Oh yeah. We had so many patients at the VA who would say 
the only way I can sleep is if I drink alcohol at night. And it's true, it allows you to pass out. You can fall asleep quicker with alcohol, but it's not good. It ends up decreasing your REM sleep, which is that kind of restorative sleep that you have. And then eventually when it flushes out of your system, you get a rebound of REM sleep, which disrupts your deep sleep. I don't want to get too caught up in the details, but essentially you're going to have more awakenings when the alcohol starts flushing through your system and you're not going to get that solid night sleep. Sleep is very important to our body where actually our brains are getting rejuvenated. We're restoring our body where our memories are getting consolidated. And when you drink alcohol, you're, you're passed out, but you're not going through those necessary stages. Yeah, everything gets fragmented. So you wake up feeling more groggy than you would otherwise. Yeah, you wake up feeling like you, you just aren't refreshed, like yeah. you, you know didn't sleep. So that's just one example. We'll get into more about how marijuana messes with your sleep too. But before we get into that, I think what would be interesting to kind of kind of talk about and and think about is what makes an athlete. I mean, you're talking about people who, I mean, there's a lot at stake for these guys at the college level. It's either your college standing and perhaps your ability to get to the pros. Mm -hmm. Um, At the professional level, it's obviously ability to play and your contract situation. What would compel someone to continue to use a banned substance in spite of grave consequences? What are the different reasons? Now, one thing that comes to mind right off the dome is like just kind of your garden variety performance enhancement. I mean... We know how much it means for a college athlete to get to the pros or for a professional athlete to be at the top of you know his or her game because there's a lot of stake, mm-hmm. like I said. There's yeah. a lot of stake. And sometimes you want you need to have that edge. And that when I when you say that I immediately think of Adderall. Because I mean, I wasn't even an athlete in college, but people would use that recreationally or for performance enhancing for studying for tests. And I know several athletes, college athletes, buddies of mine, family members of mine who played college sports, who definitely used Adderall, definitely used stimulants and said that they for sure played better on the stimulants. And it was commonplace, just like Armin and I walked into those dorms freshman year and saw everyone drink and have a good time. Kids on the on the baseball team or, just drinking. or the football team are, are and seeing their, te- their teammates using Adderall uh-huh. and playing uh, maybe playing even better. So it is a performance enhancing drug, and it's also socially accepted. And the one thing about Adderall and stimulants is they, although they do test for it, it flushes out of your system within three days. That's right. Probably within two days. So that's definitely commonplace. And then I've also heard people say that marijuana can be a performance-enhancing drug. It slows things down a little bit. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think especially if you're one of these people that... So I want to preface what I'm going to say by saying that there, there are no serious medical indications for using marijuana as a way to cure or alleviate any form of like psychiatric symptom like anxiety or depression there's no clinical, Ooh, i want to definitely there's get no into evidence this. there's no there's no evidence to no. support such findings now they, they are looking at are, go ahead cbd cbd yes as a modulator of anandamide which it, people call the um, bliss molecule I was just Ooh. looking this up recently okay this is supposed to help with motivation and, and mm-hmm. cognition. Now, it, CBD is one of two 
component. cannabis receptors. Mm-hmm. And it's actually the non-psychoactive component. Right. So THC is the psychoactive component. And they are, yeah. CBD is the one that's already been FDA approved to treat a specific seizure disorder that's in right. children. That's right. It's called Lennox-Gastaut syndrome. But CBD also, they're, they're doing some studies to actually see if it can be a, a treatment for psychosis. And also a treatment for PTSD. But let me stress this enough. It is the non-psychoactive component. It is not the THC. And psychoactive is what you would think. Which is know, what activating people the mind, who get activating high the, are, yeah. are smoking cannabis with THC. Right. CBD is like the creams that people like to put on their joints. Or the like they the get droplets dogs. they put underneath their tongues. It's been marketed for use for sleep, for migraines, and more importantly for pain control. Um, due to its analgesic and anti-inflammatory properties. Um, and, and leagues across the country are looking into it as a viable alternative to opioids, to your Norcos, to your Percocets, to your morphines, which is huge because America is in the middle of an opioid epidemic. But but the main thing is it's the CBD component of the cannabis and not the THC component that, that has these properties. In that same light, though, a lot of individuals do say that the CBD is a lot more effective when it used in combination with the THC. But yeah, I just wanted to say that as well. So back to what you were saying. Yeah, yeah. so it, like people like to use it for their pets to kind of calm them down and stuff like that. So yeah, CBD is 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 pretty do benign. That now? Oh yeah, it's um, not a bad idea. I've used CBD um, before for maybe it's off label for dogs. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I mean, you know, it's it's pretty benign CBD. THC is is you know that's that's real, and in high concentrations, it can be very psychoactive to the point of making you psychotic. Actually, absolutely. So there's ongoing studies on about this as well. It's it's linked to schizophrenia and psychotic disorders. So there's no what what we have out now for the most part. Most people are in agreement that if you already have some sort of predisposition, meaning if you have maybe a gene or you have a family history of a psychosis or schizophrenia, that smoking marijuana is more likely to bring that out in you. Well, it, yeah, it lowers your threshold, mm-hmm. but it actually does something else. So Ooh, it, it. It, it, it actually reduces the time of onset. So if you would have acquired the illness, say, in your early 20s, 22, 23, you may start having symptoms much yeah. earlier in life. That's, 16, that's the key word you yeah. may, because people, you can't really tell, right? Because you don't know right. in the absence of marijuana, would this person have these same symptoms? But let me tell you from personal experience, I'm, I'm working with a lot, of, a lot of adolescent patients and I have a lot of, at least two cases so far we, we've had where a kid perfectly fine goes, starts smoking marijuana daily for a year, maybe sophomore, junior year, and presents to the hospital hearing voices multiple voices having delusions um, that people are following him people are out to get him um, or her people are poisoning things and Mm. the only history is that they started smoking marijuana about a year ago and then started isolating and then started hearing voices and then you remove the marijuana and you wait about it's sometimes it takes a while. Yeah. One, even more than a month sometimes. Oh yeah. There's cases right now that lasting for over three months. Mm. Um, but eventually it kind of slowly subsides, but in some cases it doesn't subside. So it's hard to tell wh- whether, okay, was this the marijuana? Cause we've had patients who don't have, as we far as we know, don't have a family history of schizophrenia that are presenting like this. So there's speculation that 
it could be the marijuana that's causing this. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, and everybody, well, maybe not everybody, but most people that have, have, you know, spoke pot, they've had a situation where they started tripping, you know, they got a little paranoid. Well, I mean, sometimes it just doesn't go away for some people. And that can be just like totally debilitating. I mean, that can really take you off your game if, if you're an athlete. I mean, you can imagine being paranoid, thinking somebody's out to get you, somebody wants to to kill you. And I mean, you know, these kind of things are, are completely inconsistent with, you know, high level athletic yeah. competition. And we see this a lot in psychiatry because they come to us. Right. But yeah. that's a lot less common. What you're most likely going to see, like in, on the football field or the basketball court is someone that's smoking marijuana. Maybe, maybe it starts out recreationally. Maybe it, it evolves or it starts out because they're using it to treat an anxiety or depression, like you said, or like yeah. self-medicate. So there you go. And yeah, no, exactly. And there's no. a lot of misconceptions when it comes to that. Cause I know Arm and I both had tons of patients who will come in and be like, the only thing that helps is my marijuana. Thank God the for marijuana. Effect. That's the only thing That's what that it is. can put me to sleep. That's the only thing I can do to, before I go into work in the morning. It's the only thing I can do before I see my in-laws and, and these, some of these people are highly functional people, but they're stuck using something that they think is helping them, but they're still coming to us with symptoms of anxiety. Yeah. When I was uh, in residency and I did my rotation on addiction, one of the, the truest things I learned actually came from one of the psychologists there at the Sepulveda VA, and he was doing a, a group therapy session for people that were addicted to nicotine on tobacco cessation. And I remember he kind of went through a little bit of the process of why people so often think that smoking cigarettes relaxes them. And I think a lot of people would probably scratch their heads just now, like, well, doesn't, doesn't tobacco do that? Doesn't, why else would people smoke cigarettes, right? Well, here's what's interesting. So nicotine is a stimulant. Nicotine, dude. You know, so it is. I mean, jewels out nowadays, all these kids sucking down these jewels. They're taking high doses of nicotine at like 13 years old. Exactly. And if nicotine is a stimulant, then how on earth is it causing people to to feel relaxed and and helping them calm down? So here's here's what happens with addiction. You know, this it goes back to the power of the mind and understanding that. Right. So people do, in fact, feel relaxed after smoking cigarettes. You know, that, that, that is a real thing. That's not in, in, you know, it's not their imagination. Not it's not on their you, heads. Not if you go and smoke a cigarette. But here's, here, here's what happens. Here's what happens. So it's all about behavioral reinforcement. And it's all about understanding, you know, the dynamics of what's happening. So a typical scenario would be maybe you're at work, maybe you're at home, wherever you are, but you're indoors. And all of a sudden you, you kind of become anxious. Maybe you're stressed out, maybe, you know, whatever. And like, I got to go have a smoke. And then you may even announce to people, hey, you know, I'm going out for a smoke. I'll be back. Smoke break. Right, smoke break. Exactly. So then you leave whatever situation you're currently in, which in this moment you could imagine stressful in some way. Yeah, you're crunching numbers. You're trying or at to get least, that yeah, report into your box. Yeah. Oh, get your marble reds and head out the door. Yeah, at least there's a perception, you know, uh, you feel overwhelmed, you know, and now you're going out, you're leaving the situation, going out for a smoke break. You get your five, 10 minutes in, and then you go back. Now, what you have done is you have created over time, you do that enough times, maybe over the course of weeks to months, you have now created an association with leaving to go and de-stress, take your break, right? You've now associated that with 
what it's supposed to do, which is relaxing you. But because every time you go and do that, you happen to be smoking a cigarette, you link the relaxation to the, the cigarette when in fact the relaxation is just the taking a break, yeah. you know, the be- that behavior itself. Conditioning, and it's funny. Condi- it's a conditioning, yeah. So that's a misnomer. It's a, it's a total misnomer that, you know, the cigarette is enabling you to feel relaxed. I love this. Let me take this to the next level. Go ahead. So nicotine withdrawal, so you get addicted to nicotine over time, right? So nicotine, it hits you right away within 20 seconds, and the half-life of nicotine is about two hours, so you're going to feel at least half of the nicotine still in your system at two hours. That's what half-life means. Um, but you're going to feel that max effect for about an hour or so. Anyways, what that means is after those two hours, you're going to start going through a little bit of withdrawal. Maybe not after two hours, but you're going to go through withdrawal at some point. And what, yeah. what, what happens when you go through a nicotine withdrawal? You start mm-hmm. to get a little irritable, yep. a little anxious, you yep. have difficulty concentrating, maybe a little bit of restlessness. This will get worse and worse the longer you go. So then what happens when you go back on your smoke break? Maybe the fact that you needed a smoke break and you're getting so anxious at your desk is because you're going through a little bit of a withdrawal from the nicotine. That's right. And then you go out on that smoke break and you smoke the nicotine. So you're actually just treating the withdrawal. Your irritability or anxiety is not getting better, actually. You're just getting back to your baseline That's with right. the nicotine. So you're kind of almost chasing your tail in a way. That's right. The nicotine, the tobacco, the cigarette is causing the anxiety and the irritability. And then you have to use the nicotine, the tobacco, the cigarette to treat it. And that's so this is that cycle. And this the same thing happens with marijuana. The same thing happens with alcohol. That's why people are shaky and hungover in the morning. And you can have a seizure. And that's why they drink more alcohol and they feel better. That's how alcoholics become alcoholics. That's right. And marijuana is the same thing. A lot of people think you, or you can't get addicted to marijuana. But marijuana will put you on that roller coaster ride of emotions. It'll initially help with anxiety. Um, but then it make, goes, your brain th- goes through changes and that's the kind of tolerance and addiction process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just, you know, as a quick aside, tolerance just means that basically you got to consume more to get the same type of high, you know, that's all tolerance means. If you realize that like before you could do like just one blunt mm-hmm. and that could get you feeling to the however, and then, but now all of a sudden you kind of have to do like maybe two. Yeah. Yeah. Or even more rela- relatable, you come into freshman year of college and two beers could put you on the floor. And then by senior year, you're drinking two dozen exactly. in a sitting. So tolerance is a real thing. And, and tolerance means your brain, your body's gone through changes. These substances are making changes to your body and to your brain. And specifically, they're making permanent changes when your brain's still developing. So you really have to be careful when you're in your adolescence essentially before you're age 25, because your brain is still developing until you're about 25 years old, specifically that frontal lobe. And we talked about this a little bit before, but the reward system part of your brain, what's called the limbic system, that's developed first. So those reward pathways are already firing. You're getting that dopamine reward every time you take a puff of a cigarette or a hit of a blunt or, or chug a beer. So you're ready to go. I want more and more. But the frontal lobe, the part of your brain that controls your impulses, your decision making, your yeah. higher higher learning functioning. Yeah. That's that's where the the voluntary control yep. mechanism. The that's body not is. developed fully until you're 25. Yeah. So you're almost biologically set up for failure. And yeah. that's why uh, <laughs> the leading cause of deaths in people under the age of 25 is accidents, yeah. followed followed by suicide. So you're kind of set up for failure, and it, it's helpful. It would have been helpful to kind of learn about that as a kid, I think, 
yeah. although I, my frontal lobe wasn't fully developed, so I don't know how much I would have been able to take in. But <laughs> the problem is, this, yeah. the marijuana and the, and the alcohol make permanent changes to your frontal lobe. They affect what's called pruning, essentially affect how the way your brain develops. And then actually studies are coming out now that both marijuana daily use and alcohol binge drinking can decrease your IQ potential. Wow. And affect your long-term memory. And that pretty much is like, it really leads to a much lower quality of life than you could have had. Then it always becomes about what could have been. And that's one thing that no one, no one ever wants to have that yeah, conversation. People qu- like, how do we know this? Like, it, it, this yeah. correlates to to actual like imaging on like MRI or brain imaging. It decreases the actual size of your hippocampus, which that's the part of your brain that's memory that's and right. transitioning that's from right. short term to long term memory. Yeah, and then also decreases the size of your amygdala, amygdala, which controls your, helps control your emotions. That's right. So a lot of times, and there's several studies, you smoke marijuana, it affects your emotional control center, which in turn makes you more susceptible to anxiety in the future. So you kind of set yourself back with daily chronic drug use or substance use. We don't have, can't succinctly say like, is there a specific amount you'd be safe with drinking or smoking? We do know binge drinking more than four or five drinks in one sitting is absolutely detrimental to your mental and physical health. And we do know that daily marijuana use can be uh, detrimental to your uh, mental and physical health. Absolutely. But as far as that, everyone's, everyone's unique and different and have has different levels of tolerances. Everyone had a buddy in, in college that never drank before, but for some reason could put down like a half gallon or, or, or a pint and, and seemed like he was okay. So Yeah. Now, now, I, now I had some... a Russian friend that was like that. Oh, right. I think you knew the Russian guy. Yeah. Oh, I know him well. Yeah. <laughs> Um, shaped like a pillow. <laughs> 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 um, but no, so yeah, I mean, college athletes, they're going to be guys that are using excessive amounts of these things because they truly have an, a, you know, an addiction disorder and addiction disorder kind of comes in two primary varieties. Like you have those that are just kind of genetically predisposed. And these are the, these are the, the, the people that they really just probably just need to cut the, that substance out of, uh, you know, yep. completely out of their lives. Abstinence is, is kind of the, the only it's way. It's like what we were talking about before. Their brains are almost primed and ready to go. That yeah. that dopamine, that limp, that reward system's a little bit more... It's hyperactive. Hyperactive. Yeah. Hyper-responsive. Yeah. Hypersensitive, for sure. So they the abstinence is probably the only, mm-hmm. you know, re- realistic way those people are going are gonna to be able to, to kind of have a, a normal relationship with... with uh, substances so to speak it just has to be abstinence what we're trying to preach overall is, is moderation moderation well moderation but moderation definitely for i would say like your general typical yeah college athlete mm-hmm. which is like you know most of these guys i think are not necessarily predisposed to having addiction but they're at least genetically speaking yeah. but environmentally speaking they are because of the college environment. The high pressures, college environment. Yeah, you know. I, I think you're right. I think that's where psychiatrists can come in, mental health expert can come in and kind of get that family history, yeah. get that childhood history and, right. and kind of get a personality, temperament, figure out exactly, all right, is this is this kid, this college kid primed for an addiction disorder? Yeah. Or what are the things we have to look out for? And if so, we got to get him help. You yeah. know, we got to get him, if they've already kind of gotten to a point where they're, getting in trouble or have some sort of decline as a result of, of excessive use of, of substances. And there's a family history. Let's get them rehab. You know, let's get them, let's get them some help quickly. 
But I think, you know, the people that we have to focus on as, as well are those that, you know, are just, again, with the environmental stressors, they're just kind of using this stuff to, you know, mask anxieties, mask depressions. Or and it's, for them, it's about education. They're using it as a coping mechanism. Yeah. We see that time and time again. It's, it's Life is stressful, and life is even more stressful for a college athlete. That's right. I mean, certain things can be good about it, um, but also you're under time constraints. So you have to have coping skills. Everyone needs to have things they do to cope with day-to-day stressors. Some people may play video games. Some people may eat a cheeseburger. Some people may drink a six-pack of beer and, and smoke a joint. And we're here to tell you that there's certain things that be, can become maladaptive, can become detrimental. And yeah, and having a beer, smoking a joint, here and there, if, if it's something that you really can moderate, it's not the end of the world. You know, we're not saying just cut it out completely. You know, we're not trying to be like the college party drug scene police. Yeah, or I think it's like our that. job to, to educate. It's just more like, look. To give you all the information. Yeah, it's just more like, look, just know the consequences. We're not going to give you the scare tactics. We're going to edu- edu- educate you. What, are, what is this substance going to do to your body, to your brain? And how are you going to react to it? How, how's your history and your family's history and your genetics? Um, how does it mix with things? Yeah, absolutely. Because here's what happened. The habits you develop in college, for those that are fortunate enough to make it to the pros, they will follow you. I think we have a good example. Of we that. have a great example of that. And, and so in college, the stakes, they're, they're high, but they become a lot higher when you're looking at a $10 million contract when that, when that kind of money's on the line um, and the lifestyle and the prospects that come along with it, it, it's a whole different Mm -hmm. ball of wax. Yeah. And I think it's important to just note that I'm sure there's people out there listening that if substances didn't get in the way, they could have made it to the pros and they could have great careers. But let's, let's bring up an athlete that despite struggling with something from a very young age was able to kind of get by on maybe talent maybe skill. So should we talk about Josh Gordon? Why not? So Josh Gordon, he's been in the news. Um, he was in the news a lot over the past few years. Monster receiver. He's, he's 28 years old now. So he was on the Patriots this past year. You realize that he was on the Super Bowl, Super champion, Bowl champion, New England Patriots, got picked up from the Cleveland Browns in the off season or shortly after the season started yeah. to play alongside Tom Brady. Wow, what an opportunity. That's right. Immediately what contending for a Super Bowl. An opportunity. He had a pretty damn good year. He caught Tom Brady's 500th touchdown pass. Holy it's cow. He's a part of history. For those of you who don't know, he ended up in late December, right prior to the playoffs, he announced that he, was, he had to step away from football to focus on mental health. So prior to the start of last season, he had missed 43 of the Cleveland Browns' last 48 games because of multiple suspensions. Wild. So New England took a risk picking him up, and he he played quite some time um, before facing yet another suspension for violating the substance use policy. If you go online, Google him, you have plenty of articles about him. He was pretty candid in a GQ interview back, back in November 2017. Essentially, he said he started off in middle school, and he, quote-unquote, self-medicating with Xanax, marijuana, and codeine. Self-medicating. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's it. That's a term. That's a, that's a, that's a term, man. And, and, and I, 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 I see that so much. He said his initial usage stemmed from social awkwardness, anxiety, feelings of inadequacy, and quote-unquote adolescent trauma-based fear. Wow. 
He said the drugs helped him numb those nerves so he can just function every day. And when he was in seventh grade, he said he took a quote unquote a whole bar, which is two milligrams of Xanax, and ended up nodding off and drooling in class. Pierce started laughing, and he said that was his first experience of a high, and it was in seventh grade. You know, it's interesting. I don't know how much our listeners know about Xanax and the, the pharmacology of Xanax and medicines like it. They're called benzodiazepines. Is they're they're pharmacologically very similar to alcohol. The benzodiazepine uh, family of medicines super so, popular with rappers nowadays. Absolutely, and Ugh. and so think about it. When you take a pill of Xanax, it's almost like taking a couple of shots of mm-hmm. alcohol. Yep. That's what he basically exactly. did in class. Works on the same exact receptor. Yeah. Funny enough, alcohol and benzos are the two of the only substances that can you can die from the withdrawal from those substances. Right. Yep. Um, you could have seizures and end up you have dying. Delirium, which is like acute severe acute dementia so he he went on and he's he's been candid about he's been he's was expelled for two middle schools for he got into stealing electronics um he continued you using but despite all this he, he actually earned a basketball scholarship at a prep school in houston i'm in 10th grade so he was just a great athlete yeah stud athlete but guess what he was he was kicked out because of marijuana wow in 10th grade he then attended lamar high school which is a public school in houston and there he it's he said he joined a gang. So the handwriting was already on the wall. Yeah, in some ways. This is a kid. Usually, when you when you think of drugs, that heavy drug use in middle school, you do it kind of raises red flags in our in line of business about gang affiliation. So here, drugs, stealing, and even owning a gun at one point or having a gun at one point. Um, but he he said he was selling drugs, mainly marijuana. But he said he was he was doing it to feed himself. So. Like it or not, like in, in, in society, in a lot of parts of America, people's backs are against the wall and they, they are forced to do things to, to survive. Well, in a, yeah, and in, 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 in it's a social issue. I mean, we're talking about it in the context of it being kind of a medical issue, biological or physiological issue, and, you know, kind of a financial slash economic issue. Mm-hmm. Which are all very relevant and very important, but you know it's also very much a social issue because we're talking about these environmental influences. Yeah, it's kind of like that biopsychosocial formulation I think we talked about before. Yeah, we, I don't know his family history, but I, I'm assuming that maybe there's a, some sort of biological predisposition to addiction, possibly mm-hmm. there. Yeah. Maybe some intergenerational trauma. Maybe. There. Um, he mentioned something about trauma-based fear. So as a young kid, uh, maybe he had to overcome some trauma as well. So that makes some changes in your brain. It allows you to be a Absolutely. little bit more impulsive, which may cause you to be more quick to, to drink alcohol or to smoke marijuana. And then you're smoking the alcohol, drinking the marijuana at a young age, making further changes to your brain. Once again, ramping up that reward system that wants more dopamine, wants more drugs. He's starting at such a young age, and that's like priming him down the line for more and more issues. It is. And that's all speculation. But, you know, what you're about to go into, what you've already said and revealed to, to me and to the, our audience is that it looks like what we know for sure is that he had a an environment and therefore a set of social circumstances that was definitely reinforcing this addiction behavior. I mean, you know, talking about gang affiliation, he's mm-hmm. being exposed to drugs all the time, he's being expected to sell drugs. Yeah. 
and he needs to sell drugs to make money to, to survive. So he's in the he's in the game. Yep. You know, he's caught up. Seventh grade is when it started. It's tough to kind of stop that cycle when it starts. So he said he kind of went into starting using alcohol a lot more along with hydrocodone, continued to use Xanax, saying he was he would do even before football games, he said he would he would start to chuck Mad Dog twenty twenty. Uh, saying here that he wanted to gauge whether he could play drunk. Um, this is as a junior in high school. Using became the norm, and at that point, he felt like he was already on a path to play professional sports. He ended up going to Baylor University, which is a major Division One program in the Big 12. So at that at that time, he had to stay in the state of Texas because he was on probation, so he did have some run-ins, run-ins with the law at that point. It looks like he was arrested his sophomore year, Police found him and a teammate asleep in a parked car in the drive-through at Taco Bell at 2 a.m. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, well, I don't know. I shouldn't laugh, but I mean, I've been through the Taco Bell drive-through. Must have at been 2 a tough day of practice. Many times, yeah, they must have been tired from practice. But the officers two found days, mul- maybe? multiple bags it? of marijuana in the car. Oh, got it. So they were charged <laughs> with marijuana possession. He got suspended, but he ended up playing. I think it says here 13 games the next season. Had a great year. The next year, he's all set. I think to play with Robert Griffin, the mm, third, who right. ended up winning the Heisman, but he actually ended up getting suspended again and having to transfer. But f- before that happened, he actually told uninterrupted. Um, in October 2017, he told someone from Interrupted that a coach at Baylor helped him cheat during tests. They actually gave him like bottles of detox to cheat the uh, the drug tests. We all know big time Division One football. Um, a That's lot of people wild, smoke man. marijuana, but. So he, he, he says it here himself. He, I've been enabled most of my life, honestly. I've been enabled by coaches, teachers, professors. Everybody pretty much gave me a second chance just because of my ability. Well, there it is. That's sad. I mean, that's great. It's good insight, but that, it's just it's sad it had to be like that. Well, it is. It, it is. Josh Gordon, I mean, that story, it just, it's one of these stories, man, that just boggles my mind. You know, it defies the imagination because... You see flashes of greatness. Yeah. So despite all these issues, he ends up getting kicked off Baylor because of multiple uh, suspensions due to marijuana. Despite all this, he received offers to tra- transfer to UCLA, USC, Oregon. These are like the t- some of the top programs at the time. Yeah. Yeah. I guess UCLA makes sense because they knew that eventually yeah. they'd be legalizing. And he's, according to this, no, he's, just like, he said he would sp- yeah, smoke blunts and pop Adderall on the way to these these college visits. So he ended up le- leaving uh, Baylor in 2011. He ended up transferring to Utah. So he was just a functional addict. Yeah. He said he tried cocaine for the first time at Utah. Um, he, he began taking thought. Adderall daily. So then he's getting into the dopamine modulating drugs at this point, some uppers. So he continued to fail drug tests. He says here he contended to sell marijuana uh, to support his family, mm-hmm. but he never took a snap at Utah. He ended up opting for the NFL supplemental draft in 2012 and ended up getting drafted by the Cleveland Browns. Once he was in the NFL, says here that he had a ritual of taking bong rips and or shots of Grand Marnier or whiskey before kickoff. Wow. <laughs> Where's this going down at? I don't... Uh, he said, I would probably drink, quote unquote, I would probably drink like a half a glass or a couple shots to try and warm my system up to get the motor running. Do you think it was like his dirty little secret or do you think everybody, like people knew about this? Were, are other guys doing this I, stuff? I'd have to think. Does he I, have his own little I, crew of, you know, alcoholics? I can't imagine players? throughout the whole, his whole entire, entirety of his career that he was 
always doing this by himself, but sometimes it's hard to believe. I mean, well, apparently him and Manziel had yeah. a thing, right? I don't don't get me started on Manziel for <laughs> okay. sure. Though they, yeah, they did. They both were trying to get back in the league together. Yeah, but he estimated that in college, in the pros early on, he he always had something in his system. But he actually played all sixteen games his rookie season, two thousand twelve. But he was he was suspended for the first time in the NFL, the first two games of the, his second season. Anyways, he he ended up playing great the rest of the fourteen games of the two thousand thirteen season. It was his second year in the NFL, and he earned Pro Bowl honors. I remember specifically wow, that's right. that he took the fantasy football leagues by storm that year. Mm-hmm. Points per game, he was probably that he was definitely the number one receiver, and everyone was going crazy because he came out of nowhere. And he was on the Browns for Christ's sake. I think that was frustrating for me personally because I, 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 I didn't have him on my team. Remember the quarterback of the Browns of that, uh, that year? Oh, it was a couple of them. Yeah, that's crazy, that's right? A to good think question. about, he made a, he he made the Pro Bowl was off it, of a Cleveland Browns quarterback. It, Colt, it wasn't Colt McCoy, was he? It wasn't Johnny Manziel. He wasn't there yet. No, he wasn't there yet. Um, it was either Hoyer or Campbell. Maybe Hoyer. Hoyer sounds right to me. It says here that Jason Campbell started eight games, so I think it was Hoyer and Campbell. Anyways, it's, it looks like his, his quarterback with Jason Campbell and Brandon Hoyer, studs, absolute studs, oh, former Hall of Famers. Now this dude balled out with a couple scrub QBs, and he was getting lit up before games. Mm-hmm. That's impressive. It is. So, essentially, I think I'm pretty sure he didn't play in many games after that. And but everyone knew his talent at this point, undeniable, undeniable. And that's why the Patriots, the probably, arguably, the best franchise in sports all of sports over the past 15 years certainly among the most known for taking a lot of troubled quote-unquote troubled athletes and kind of helping them out not that randy moss was ever to this extent but he had his best season with them so they took him on to the start of the season and he started out having a great season and then kind of back to square one he's he's already done some stints in rehab in 2016 yeah. And actually here he said he stayed sober for six months following his initial uh, 30-day stint in rehab. He then wanted to celebrate in the way he knows how, um, so he used drugs and alcohol. Um, uh, see, and this just, is where this is quote unquote, where he said he reached his rock bottom right. in 2016. Wow. So that's when he went back into rehab for three months. Uh, just so our, our, our listeners know... It's not uncommon for uh, an addict to relapse multiple times before they finally get it right and finally able to really maintain abstinence. Yeah. You know, so it's it's just it is kind of the natural course of the illness. So, like we already mentioned a little bit before, this is someone who we don't know his biological background. We do know what we do know is all the the, the psychosocial stressors that he faced, yeah. um, and the fact that he got caught up in and drugs at a very young age and that made changes to his brain to his reward system not only physical changes but also kind of that psychological dependence that you mentioned earlier that that conditioning that occurred that maybe he he associated his coping skill his way to relax was was drugs and alcohol and anytime he needed to relax it was associated with drugs and alcohol that's right Um, so essentially those are paired together so you can't do one without the other where we come into play that's where rehab comes into play obviously you need to detox that's the first step yeah and so is you know detox is a medical procedure to medically manage tapering procedure that enables the safe withdrawal of 
the drug from the body, tries to mitigate the, the side effects of the withdrawal process and, you know, monitor for any kind of complications. Yeah. So for him, we're looking at if he is alcohol and Xanax are two things he's using consistently daily, you can't just go cold turkey off those. No, 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 no. So you actually use benzodiazepines to taper off of alcohol, essentially using medications prescribed by psychiatrists to slowly taper off of uh, the alcohol and the benzos. So, he can eventually go off those completely and avoid withdrawal at the same time. Mm-hmm. So then he's detoxed from those. And if he was ever, I don't think at this point, it never said he was using heroin, but for something like heroin, that's a really extremely painful withdrawal. You're not going to die yeah, from that withdrawal. They say you, you, you feel like shit. You can go cold turkey on that, but it's it's ruthless. And a, a lot of times that's why there's methadone clinics. That's why there's what's called suboxone. Essentially, these are long-acting opiates. What heroin is can be on these long-term and slow, maybe slowly over time get tapered off of them. That isn't connected to his case at all. Marijuana, obviously, something that you can get off of. You're going to go through some withdrawals. You may feel a little bit more anxious, a little bit more irritable, have difficulty sleeping, have a de- decrease in appetite, pretty much the opposite feelings of what you get when you initially smoke. Mm-hmm. But I think the more important thing for him is that what is he going to have to replace these coping mechanisms? Yeah, so what detox is, is just step one. His yeah. do- dopamine, the, the reward chemical, yeah. that's depleted now. Right. We should, we should probably help our listeners understand that the brain is like telecommunications network. And so with any good telecommunications system, you want to have strong connections you know, in order to propagate the signal. And you, you've really disrupted the network, you know, the connections in between the networks when you've exposed your body that, in, in that kind of way to, to these, these chemicals at these super high doses at inappropriate levels for inappropriate periods of time. And um, you, you don't just bounce back like that. You know, it takes time for the brain to kind of rewire, reconfigure itself. To, to kind of restore a natural flow in terms of that communication highway that, that, you know, those various pathways. And easier said than done. Yeah, but thankfully, like you said, sometimes it just takes time to get things reset because our, our brains are resilient. They are. Although you can make some permanent changes to your brain with substance, specifically if you use them before the age of 25, it could bounce back, maybe not to the, the optimal functioning it could have been before, but it can all, it can bounce back with a time of sobriety. So it's that's that's the hardest part is staying sober, and in certain cases it gets to the point where you may need some sort of substitute, some sort of medication management to kind of keep you on the straight and narrow, especially if you were initially using the medic the the marijuana or the alcohol to treat an underlying depression or anxiety. You may we can. We can treat depression and anxiety with something that's not addictive that will help kind of restore the serotonin and the dopamine in your brain and help your brain recover. Also, why rehab is necessary is because you need to eliminate distractions, right? Right. Since a lot of this is, like you mentioned, so like social stressors, environmental, That's right. you have to take them out of that environment. Since he, he mentioned here that so many people enabled him throughout the time. So you got to kind of eliminate the, the, the enablers. So applause to him that he stepped away from sport to get away from that because there there's an association there, hopefully getting away, unfortunately, from any negative influences from his past. Mm-hmm. 
getting them in a kind of a structured environment can be important and helpful for individuals. No, it's 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 absolutely essential. I and mean, it, it's essential because you think, think about it. I mean, what we what we touched on earlier, and you know, now we're kind of coming back to is a lot of addiction is behavioral. It's behavioral based on associations. Yep. You know, based on. You know, we have just like with the cigarette smoking example and the smoke break, we we create these associations that are positively reinforcing. I, I one time talked to a, a, a drug counselor at the VA. Had been in that position for like thirty plus years. Former addict, addict himself, really wise guy, wise to the game, man. You know, he grew up in in uh, South Central LA and Watts. Um, and he was like, man, look, addicts become addicts because there's something about the drugs that they like. Like no one becomes an addict because they don't like something. So that he was like, most of, most people that are, you know, alcoholics that are drug, drug addicts, they love the way it makes them feel. There's, mm-hmm. there's something that keeps, keeps them coming back. Yep. And it's a positively reinforcing mechanism there. And so... When you have something that strong in terms of um, a force that's drawing you to something, you have to separate those two things somehow. You know, you have to take that person out of that environment and away from those influences that are driving that reinforcement, you know, and creating those positive mm-hmm. associations, whether it's social acceptance. Easy access to... Yeah, well. Right. But in terms of the things that people crave, you know, a lot of times it's social acceptance, gang, you know, gang affiliations often about just finding a way into, you know, having a family, you know, yeah. uh, you know, a home away from home when you ha- come from a broken home um, or it's alleviation of anxiety. Yeah. And so trying to there's a complicated emotion, avoiding something. Right. Not only is it about getting your, your body off of the the drug which is the which, that physical which is dependence the, which is yeah the detox phase but it's also getting your mind off mm-hmm. of the drug the mental you know dependence. which is that kind of maintenance phase the rehab the the residential rehab where you're committing to being in a new environment with different people and different ideas different information you know you're in therapy you're learning new things you are priming your mind to create new associations. Mm-hmm. You're creating a new support system, a That's new right. tribe uh, of like-minded individuals all trying to overcome the same same issues or similar issues. And I think being an athlete sometimes could be protective because I know a lot of times we talked about the kind of brain changes and your, your brain needs dopamine, serotonin. Exercise um, oh, yeah. can, can help replace that. A lot of times, I know every Armin and I, we go to the gym, we go play catch with the football. You feel good afterwards. Endorphins you are, are pumped up a little bit. So it's it's, it's kind of a, a natural a natural high, if you will. Um, so athletes, in a sense, can be protected of that if they're able to transition their focus strictly into the sport. But at the same time, like you said, with those associations, if you, if you are associating playing football with having a beer beforehand or smoking a joint beforehand or smoking marijuana after you win a big game, you got to somehow disconnect from those associations. And Absolutely, man. And, you know, and, and then after, after rehab, uh, in, in like a more like residential or inpatient setting, a hospitalized kind of setting, the next phase is really kind of the, probably the most critical phase, you know, and that's when you go back into the environment, yeah. you know, because eventually you can't, you can't yeah. shield yourself from reality. No. 
Um, you're going to go back in that locker room and maybe you win the, the pennant or you win the Super Bowl and there's champagne everywhere and people are smoking cigars. And Why not? Time to you let know? loose. And you've been, what, two years sober. and yeah. You forget what it's like a little bit. You know, you don't. You, you, you don't, think you have good control yeah. these past two you years. You think you have good control. And then you and then it always comes back to that, man, I can do just one. Can I? I can have just one drink. And I think people, there's mis, misperceptions, misconceptions about all these people are like mentally weak. Just have a beer with me and yeah. get over it. Yeah. That beer. We're celebrating. We're partying, yeah. man. Come on. That beer has a totally different effect on that person than it does you. Their brains wired differently. Their their emotions are wired differently. They're, they've gone through di- different experiences. So you got to cut these people slack because it it is a mental illness. It is an illness. Yeah. And it's yeah. a treatable true, illness. True addiction is. True, true, true addiction is absolutely. It's a, it's a terrible illness. And uh, it's taken down many. Taken down Talk many. about stigma, man. That's what, why we're here. And there's, there's obviously huge stigma in mental illness and there's a huge stigma with regards to addiction that's right i think we can get people on board with mental illness but it might be hard to get people on board with addiction you know i just want to touch on this this one we talk about addiction and that what's interesting about uh addiction treatment is that the most effective treatment for addiction historically is actually 12-step facilitation yeah. You know, it's not done the medicine. I mean, although medicines, you know, of course, for, for the detox phase, the, you know, probably the most important thing. But in terms of preventing relapse. Yeah. Comparing like to naltrexone and. Yeah. All compared those to medicines, things. compared to, you know, all these different Antibus. types of therapies and group therapy, you know. But 12 step facilitation, you know, the 12 step programs, Alcoholics Anonymous, Nar- Narcotics Anonymous, these programs are very, very effective when compared to all the other types of treatments. And I actually have, have come to realize just kind of looking into some of these programs and, and trying to understand what they're about. I think what makes the 12-step facilitation such a unique experience is that it really is, at least in part, a spiritual treatment, you know, a spiritual awakening. Mm-hmm. And I realize that for you know the true addicts out there, that's what really has to happen in order to beat addiction. Yeah. Because you have to kind of submit to a higher power. Exactly. You know? Something I, I, I even don't know from what within. step that is, but in, in it's, that it's higher in there. power, whatever you think that higher power is, you don't have to have a belief no. in God. It's no. just a higher power to relinquish control, like you said. To relinquish control. And I think yeah. along with that aspect, it's the tribalism, the sense of a community. Right. I think that for me, I'm looking at that as, as the number one factor for them yeah. getting better to be around other people, to being around that new environment, that new supporting environment where, where everyone kind of has each other's backs. And there's a sense of community, a sense of understanding that that's everyone right. has had similar experiences. And that's powerful. That's powerful. I think we can all agree across all walks of life, a good, strong sense of family, community, is is going to be protective for just about any mental illness. I would say even physical illnesses, um, any issue throughout life. Oh, absolutely, man! Not only do they encourage you, as at least as part of this, the twelve steps to uh, to submit to that higher power, but some of the other steps require you to engage in activities that really all about kind of moral cleansing. Um, you know, achieving that degree of penance and uh, kind of coming to terms and confronting 
not just the illness and the potential consequences, but also issues and, and, and problems from the past. You know, they make you go back. They say they a lot of go right your wrongs. Right your wrongs. I've heard that from a lot of clients, people I know. That's, that's one of the hardest steps. It's tough. It's yeah. tough, but it really causes you to kind of get to have that spiritual journey. Get rid of that kind of guilt and shame. Yeah. That kind of eat you away. That's right. You know, and, and I think that's so important. And not just for hardcore addiction, man, but for really any problem. And I think a lot of times with mental illness in general, people can look back and, and say that maybe because of some sort of mood swings or, you know, some sort of irritability because they're just not feeling good about themselves or feeling good about things they may have hurt someone else, hurt themselves. And so I think irrespective of the type of mental illness that you have, but certainly for addiction, I mean, many, many addicts can think of times when they got drunk or they got high and they said something you know, they didn't mean mm-hmm. or did something they, they, they shouldn't have done. And, and, and you do oftentimes, you, you get a reputation or there, you, know, you have things, again, that are kind of stains on the record that you, you want to confront, uh, you want to be open about, you want to be honest about, and you want to, to challenge head on and, and challenge yourself to be better. Mm-hmm. And that, that's one thing that I, I think uh, is so important, uh, not just for beating the addiction, but just for becoming you know, better people in general. And, and that's a challenge of, one of the challenges of being a professional athlete and, you know, and, and making that leap from college to the pros is, can you be a, a man, a real man? Can you be a, a real woman? And, and can you stare competition down in, in the face of adversity and say, hey, you know, I'm going to put team first. I'm going to put the, the mission first over myself. The, all of these kind of lessons, they, they do flow into competition. At the end of the day, I think greatness is just as much about integrity and being true to the game as it is about anything else, you know, in terms of your skill and beating addiction certainly is going to require a lot of that. Yeah. I want to leave you guys with, with one more thing. I think if, if anything, um, with regards to addiction, I think we can all show a little bit more empathy when it comes to those suffering with addiction. I know it's, it's extremely difficult and you think that some of these decisions are made volitionally, but like we kind of outlined with the story is some of this stuff starts at a very young age when your brain's very susceptible and the use causes your brain to be even more susceptible and it starts this cycle, this vicious cycle that results in, in mental illness and it snowballs from there. Here's, here's where we can leave things. Um, the Josh Gord story, man, it's such a compelling story because here you have a, a young black man so gifted He's been blessed with these God-given abilities that you know, are just so impressive that people are willing to pay to just watch him perform. And to watch somebody with that level of skill to kind of just throw it all away because he can't escape his past, you know, and those demons from his past is just such, it's so tragic. It's tough to say throw it away because it's almost like he's not in control. And that's what addiction is. Right. And despite his struggle with obvious addiction since the seventh grade, he's had a better professional football career, better football career than 99.9% of people. Right. Like he made a Pro Bowl. He had one of the best years a receiver could have playing for the Cleveland Browns. That's right. And he just recently got, like we said, got picked up by the Patriots, one of the best franchises in sports. And 
literally has been struggling with addiction the entire time and not just addiction to a single substance, multiple substances. Yeah, what could have been? I mean, what can be? What what can, what can still be? I mean, what he could have did been? just tweet May 14th, 2019. He tweeted, blessed with so much, I couldn't ask for more. Life just keeps getting better. Wow. Dot, dot, dot. Hashtag winning. Hashtag God is great. See. So he's turned things around. So that's not a like. bad sign. Yeah. But this fight never ends. No, it, it doesn't end. And let me ask you this. Should he even worry about continuing to play professional football? Is that in his best interest at this point? It's an important question. All right. I don't know. Um, thanks for having that this conversation with me, Armin. And uh, that was fun. So uh, what's in the stigma? Let's continue the conversation. Do you feel me? <laughs>